0: Amen. Amen. What a great morning to worship, to experience the Spirit of God, and to praise Him for all that He's done. Hey, let me invite you now to take your copy of God's Word, if you will, and I want you to turn to the last book of your New Testament, the last book of the Bible, and turn to Revelation. We're going to look at chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 12 in a few moments, and I want to bring you a message this morning that I've entitled, The Danger of Compromise. The Danger of Compromise. Now, initially, when I think about the word of compromise, I recognize that it's not just a negative word. There are moments where I like long for compromise. So as a parent, for example, I see some young parents who are here. You've got a couple of children or so. They're in an argument. Do you not hope that in some way they can reach a compromise? Sure. Or maybe when you're going to a restaurant and you're disagreeing, like the kids in particular. I'm sorry, is it, is it a common theme here, by the way? Kids are always the disagreement. Anyway, so let's, let's say you're going to a restaurant and there's disagreement. You kind of pray that there will be a compromise. There have been moments where I've actually had to mediate between my spouse and one of my children. Does that happen sometimes? And you hope and pray for a compromise? You want to compromise maybe on the family vac no, no. Dad makes the decisions about family vacation, we go to Disney World, it's all settled. Don't have to worry about compromise. Amen. So you got families that you see compromise. Sometimes you even won't compromise in the church. When you have disagreement over the color of the carpet, can't we just compromise? You want blue? You want a little bit of green? Let's go with like this in-between color. Let's compromise. Or maybe it's in that business meeting at the church. You're trying to get a new uh, vehicle, and you've got the Ford people versus the Chevy people, and they won't give on either side. There's nothing doctrinal about that, right? Ford's always more righteous. It's nothing. But you you... Uh, So there's compromise from time to time that can come into your lives. It's important. There are days when I wish that our leadership in our nation would be a little more willing to compromise, to get some things done. So there's there's a place for compromise. Let me say to you that there is a place where you should not compromise, though, as well. When it comes to your doctrine, when it comes to your values— when it comes to your principles, when it comes to your relationship, not just your relationship with your family, but your relationship with Jesus, there should be no compromise. And that's really what Jesus says to this church at Pergamos, or some of your translations may say Pergamum. But Jesus will come to this church and he'll say, hey, I've not called you to compromise. Now, they were contending, but they were also compromising. So look at the word, if you will, with me. Beginning in verse 12, it says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos write. So here's Jesus. He says to John, write to the angel, which is the messenger or the pastor at Pergamos. So write to the pastor, write to the messenger and let him then deliver it to the church. And then Jesus identifies himself. He says, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. So here's Jesus saying, I'm the one that has the sharp two-edged sword. According to chapter 1 and the vision you have of Jesus, that two-edged sword is coming out of his mouth. So it's the idea of the word of God. It's the idea of authority. Jesus says, here I am. I'm speaking to you. I want to get your attention. And then verse 13. He says, I know. And he has said that to the previous two churches that he's addressed. The next Four churches, he's going to also say that I know you. And the word here is I know for a fact. I know everything about you. I know you. And he says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days which Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So he comes and he commends them. Most of the time when you look at people, you look at churches, there are some good things that are going on. You know, most of the time something good is happening. And Jesus says, I want to commend you because you are contending for the faith. He said, you have stood for my name and for the faith itself. So I think what Jesus is saying to them Is I am grateful that you value your relationship with me And that you still speak my name You are not ashamed of the name of christ, but you have stood valiantly for that name and he says and you have also stood In my faith or in my teaching. I think he's saying you've kept most of the teaching most of the doctrine You've been there. You followed it. You are standing strong And this was not easy this was difficult for that early church. It was difficult for them to proclaim the name of Christ. It was difficult for them to keep the teaching. Why? Well, did you see what Jesus said? He said, there you are where Satan's temple is. Or where Satan dwells, twice for emphasis. It's like, that is the place of demonic influence. It's the capital of Satan. You know, when I think of the capital of Satan, I think of like Duboc, right? I'm um, no, no, hold on. Just a minute. That's the dog trot capital, not the demonic capital. I, you know, preachers, allegory, you know, alliteration, sometimes D's, D's, all gets mixed up in my head. But it's it's the idea that there is the power of Satan that is resident there in Pergamus. So why would he say that? Let's do just a little bit of history. Just a little bit, because I think. The Bible comes alive when you're able to understand the history behind this. When you look at Pergamus, you look at the landscape, you'd find a beautiful capital city. It was one of the most beautiful cities in Asia Minor. But what you would also find in Pergamos is basically the hill on which it was constructed, the villages down at the, uh, I guess I would say, at the base of the mountain, but up on the hill on the Acropolis, you would find all kinds of temples that would dot the horizon. All kinds of them. If you were to go up there, you'd find a temple to the imperial cult. Basically what that meant was, in the Roman day, you had to worship the emperor. You were expected to give not just your loyalty, but your worship to the emperor. And Pergamus was the capital of that cult for all of Asia Minor. In other words, people would come there. The Other cities had temples as well, but Pergamos was like the hub of worship of the emperor. Also, though, you would look up and you would find other temples. Dionysius, you would find a temple for Athena. There would be all kinds of, obviously, priests that would be in service of those temples. You would find a temple to Asclepius. Some of you say, Asclepius, what? What is that? The god of healing or medicine. Pergamos was known as being the center of healing and medicine. There was a doctor, some of you may remember of history, his name was Galen, and he was one of the most popular doctors, and this is where he was from, so people would just flock there for healing. Oh, and I don't think it was wasted on Christians that the symbol of Asclepius, the serpent. Some of you could see the serpent in certain medical fields today. I don't think it was lost as Christians would look up at that temple and they would see the symbol of the snake or the serpent. And right alongside, maybe even more prominent, would have been a temple to Zeus, to Zeus, that would have towered above. They said it looked like a throne when you saw the temple itself. Am I painting a picture for you? like the place where Satan dwells. I mean, you could take any or all of that and it looks like the demonic forces of hell are unleashed upon Pergamus. In every case, pagan god, emperor worship, whatever else, this is the power of Satan that has been revealed. And he says, "Here you are." And not only was the demonic influence felt there in Pergamus, but the influence of Pergamus would be feel, felt through the centuries. I found this interesting as I studied. You may not, but that's okay. I'll get the floor this morning for just a little while. I found it interesting that the altar of Zeus became a cultic, even demonic power for some people. In the 1800s, for example, German ar- architects, or archaeologists, I should say, came to Pergamus. And they began to dig, and they began to bring back the altar of Zeus. And they began to reconstruct it. And then they ended up sending it to Berlin. And in 1930, a new museum was opened in Berlin that would focus the altar of Zeus. They would call it the Pergamon altar. That's what they would call it. In 1930, there was a young man who had been employed by what was called the Nazi party that walked into that museum and he saw this altar of Zeus and he was inspired you see he was an architect for the Nazi party and what he did is he took this idea of the altar of Zeus and he began to perform his own design and he came up with a design for a pulpit for a guy named Adolf Hitler and that altar of Zeus' pulpit was placed in Nuremberg so that when Hitler would have his speeches, he would come together. It was almost like a reincarnation of Zeus or something that is divine. I give you that to, again, give you the background that here is a church that's in the midst of a demonic influence. And that demonic influence extended all the way to the 20th century. And listen to what Jesus said to them. You have stood. You have stood for me, and you've stood for my faith. You've stood for my teaching. Hey, that should give you hope and encouragement today, that you can be in the midst of demonic influences, you can have Satan trying to attack in every way possible, and yet you have the power through the Holy Spirit of God to still stand for what is right and not compromise your principles. Jesus even noted a guy. His name was Antipas. He said just as Antipas was the faithful martyr. That terminology is used of Jesus in the book of Revelation. And here it's used of Antipas. The faithful testimony. We don't know much about Antipas. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us much. History says that he was actually actually burned in a bronze bowl. That he was roasted in that, for his faith there in Pergamus, But Jesus said, I know you stood. I know you've contended for me and for my faith. So that's awesome. That's the commendation that you want. But then you move to verse 13. Look, look, actually, verse 14. It says, But, you see, everything seemed to be going well. Jesus looking around, he sees all these good things, but I got to hate that word. I mean, God's looking at my life and he's like, hey, Reggie, you're doing well, boom, boom, boom. But when he looks at the church life and he says, hey, y'all doing great ministry, great work, but you got to hate that word. And here Jesus says, but I have a few things against you. Ooh. Can you feel how that phrase packs a punch? Jesus just said he had a few things against the church, the people that he loved. He said, I got a few things because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. Because you have those there who hold the doctrine of Balaam. The wording here is that you go on allowing this to happen. It's not like they just came in, they taught a few things. It's like you continue to give residence to the teaching, to the practice of Balaam. Now, some of you remember Balaam. You've heard of Balaam. He was in the Old Testament. Some of you, a few of you. Yeah, some of you have. Remember the donkey? Like, remember the donkey that speaks? Yeah. Old Testament, Numbers chapter 22 through 25. I remember when I was a child, I read that like, A donkey is speaking. Actually, I heard a preacher preach it the first time, and I thought, did he just say what I thought? And I went home, and I decided I was going to read the Bible for myself because surely he didn't say a donkey, just spoke. I read that passage, and, of course, I lived in a very agricultural area, and my parents had livestock. I went out back, and I tried to see if I could have a conversation with the horses and the cows at that point. I mean, Yeah, you remember that part, but you remember what Balaam did. Balaam was a preacher for hire. You know, a preacher that could just tell you what you wanted. Just hire them and do what you need them to do. So, Balak was the king of Moab. and He looked around and he saw how Israel was making its way in the Exodus and how God had worked in their lives and how some people had already come in contact with them and been destroyed so the King of Moab, he says, We got to find us a preacher that will curse Israel. So he went out and he found Balaam. And at first, Balaam said, Not having any part of that king, don't want to do that. But eventually, through the king's insistence and other things that transpired, he finally gave in and he went with Balak. And there's Balaam, the prophet, the preacher. He stands up on this mountain and he sees all the Israelites. He's been paid to curse these people. And all of a sudden, he begins to speak. And what happens? He actually blesses the people of Israel. Can you imagine how that king was infuriated? The Bible says that King Balak was so mad because he had just paid him to curse the people. And now he had stood there and blessed them. A second time, Balaam would stand at the insistence of Balak to curse the people, and yet he would bless them. A third time would come, he would bless them again. Now, I wish I had time. I could preach a sermon just on that because I love this. What Satan means to curse your life with, God can turn around and bless your life with. I mean, I love that. Three times, three times it was supposed to be a curse, and three times it ended up a blessing because that's the power of God when he works. Well, Balaam was not, or Balak, I should say, was not able to bring curse upon the people of Israel. So you know what Balaam did? Balaam, who had said, I can only speak what God says as far as a curse or blessing, Balaam said, I know how you can get them. Know how you can get them. What you need to do is you need to entice them. You need to entice them. Yep. Look at what Revelation says. It says, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. A stumbling block. You know what the Greek word is behind stumbling block"? Some of you look and say, I don't care what the Greek word is. I've been in class all week. This is not class. This is worship. I've got to give it to you because it really speaks volumes. The word for stumbling block in the Greek, scandalon. a scandal. He says, you would throw a stumbling block. You would throw a scandal right in front of them. That's what you do because you've got to get them something that will entice them. And what Balaam said is, I look around and I see some beautiful women you have here in Moab. What you need to do is you need to send those beautiful women out and entice the men of Israel to sin and immorality and they will give themselves to idolatry. It was the doctrine Balaam to try to trip up God's people in such a compromised way there's also what here is identified as the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and we must be frank with you that most Bible scholars when they're working through this they'll tell you they don't know exactly the nature of the Nicolaitans they don't know where they came from some people think they're errant followers of the deacon Nicholas that's in Acts chapter 6 some think it's about that word. Okay, you love Greek. Let me give you this. It's the Greek breakdown. Nike or, hey, Nike, like the book. I mean, the the shoe. Sorry, that tells you how many times I've worn a Nike. But Nike, a shoe, right? What does Nike mean? What does Nike mean? It means victory. It means conqueror. You have the Nike shoe because the goddess Nike was the goddess of victory, the conqueror. That's what it was supposed to mean. So you got Nike there, the conqueror. And then that last part, Laos, would mean people. So it's like somebody has come in and they've conquered the people. They've lorded over the people. They're trying to have a victory over the people. Now, somehow, the Nicolaitans and those who are following Balaam, they're in the same boat because what are they doing? They're enticing people to idolatry and immorality. They're eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Now, Paul said that wasn't a big deal. So obviously here what it means is they're taking part in pagan feasts and they're worshiping other gods through these pagan feasts. And then they're engaging in sexual immorality. The church was being compromised. They were allowing themselves. Let me say to you that Satan's strategy is to entice you to compromise your values, your principles, your relationships. When Satan cannot achieve overtly what he would, Satan will then come covertly and try to achieve his plan and his purpose. Because, see, go back to the Old Testament. The Israelites would have never just walked into Moab and started worshiping their gods. And Satan knew that. So Satan, through the scheming of Balaam and Balak, decided that they would just entice them to sexual immorality and then they would give themselves fully to idolatry. Because that's the way Satan works. It's his tactic. Satan, when he cannot come through the front door of your house, he will come through the back door of your house. When you tell him that he's not welcome, when he walks up to the front door, he will find some window to climb in of compromise. It is his tactic. Tozer said this, one compromise here, another there, and soon enough, the so-called Christian and the man in the world look exactly the same. Just a few compromises alone. And that's what you see here, the people being compromised. Chuck Swindoll said, it doesn't take long for the practice of compromise to actually become the pattern of compromise. So it's the practice, and then it becomes the pattern. But what does the Bible teach us? What does the Bible teach us? Romans chapter chapter 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You and I are not to think like the world thinks. You and I are not to be squeezed into the mold of the culture around us. We are to be counter-cultural in who we are and how we think and how we live. We are to be renewed. We're to be transformed as the Spirit of God and His Word works within us. James said, James said, you can't be a friend of Jesus and a friend of the world. Jesus said, If you are a friend of me or you love me, the world will hate you. So there is no compromise of values or relationships. And yet it seems like the world still squeezes us, especially in these areas of idolatry and immorality. Let me take this latter one in particular. It says there that they are engaging in sexual immorality, that's what's happening. You shouldn't be surprised because if you read of the Greek and the Roman culture, it was highly sexualized. I mean, morality basically did not exist. Immorality was celebrated. Let me give you a couple of quotes. Seneca. Seneca said that women were married to be divorced and then divorced to be married. That was the idea of what marriage should look like. Another Greek philosopher said this. He said, we keep prostitutes for pleasure. We keep mistresses for the day-to-day needs of the body. And we keep wives for the begetting of children and for the faithful guardianship of our homes. That was the mentality. That was the mentality of the culture that the church was birthed into, the Roman, the Greek culture. And if you want to talk about Uh, homosexual activity you would find it all across the landscape all across the landscape even practiced among the leadership itself and yet it's in that highly sexualized culture that the church comes and the church has this radical let's just say this radical sex ethic that it teaches one man one woman in a marriage relationship for a lifetime. Do you hear that? That's what the church was supposed to be. And that's what they did teach. And this was a push back against all sexual immorality. All kinds of it that would be across the landscape. The, the minimizing of the value of men and women through these, this sexual immorality. They were to push back. They were to say each person was valued. Each person should not be a sex object, but rather viewed as an image-bearer of God himself. The church pushed back. But unfortunately, those there in Pergamus they had compromised. Now, I used some terminology a couple weeks ago when the 9 o'clock blended. I don't think I used it in here. Often, I hear the term post-Christian used of our nation. And maybe the European nations, some of those. And what they mean by that is, there was a moment in the nation and the nations where, like, there was a Christian type of influence. So now you'll talk about doing ministry in a post Christian world. I don't really like that terminology. I'll, I'll actually say to you, if it's anything, it's a pre Christian culture that we're living in. What I mean by that is, like, I, I'm looking around and the culture that I see across our globe today mirrors more of what we're talking about in the New Testament maybe than than we want to admit. But this is what's good. The New Testament is just as applicable, if not more applicable, today to our lives than it ever has been. Right? Because it addresses the same scenarios. Hey, 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 this is what's good. The gospel was able to change people's lives in the New Testament. And the gospel is still able to change people's lives today. You look around and you say, oh, look at this culture. Okay, that was the culture then. And the gospel changed people and transformed people. It may be the gospel, it may be the culture now, but praise be to God, it's the same gospel that's just as powerful that can change people's lives and hearts. Don't give up on the gospel. Don't give up on the truth. Don't compromise, but yet speak the good news of Jesus Christ and the transformation that can occur. I tell you, as I look across our culture, I do see a pre-Christian kind of idea, especially when it comes to sexuality. It burdens me. it breaks me that we have denominations and religious leaders today that are intent on changing the definition of what marriage truly is in the Scripture. I don't think we should be mad about it necessarily. I think we should be heartbroken about it. Today in our churches, and let me say this, even in our churches, we have accepted blatant sexual immorality right before us. We've almost said, it's okay. You're a Christian, it's okay. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's not okay for you to have sex outside of marriage. No, it's not. It's not okay for you to have sexual activity with anybody that's not your spouse. It's not okay for you to do that. It's not. And yet in our churches, we have railed against certain things when we've allowed sexual immorality just to be so prevalent. I feel like Paul would come to us sometime just as he did the Corinthian church. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when Paul said, how are you allowing this? There is a man that is living with his husband's wife. And yet, you have done nothing about that. I'm not, some of you look around and say, who is that in temple? No, I didn't say that. But friends, sexual immorality that's around us. Some of you are too young to remember this, but for Those of us who've been in ministry a while, we look around and we see people fuss about music and worship all the time. We don't have it as much now, but we used to. And I thought to myself, all this time, our churches are arguing over the beat of the music and they're missing the heartbeat of Christ. All this time, we talked about the immorality of the courses, and yet we have forgotten the immorality of the conduct that we see around us. Tony Evans said that compromise is the cancer of the church and we must rid Christ's body of it. While Christians can compromise on preferences, they cannot compromise on principles. We can't be one way on Sunday and another way on Monday. This is a major problem among Christians in America today. We don't take a stand. We don't keep our standards. We merely shift to satisfy society. Our preachers today They sound more like CNN and Fox News contributors than they do the people that are called by God to deliver the truth. In our churches, when we go out, we look the same as the world does on Monday or Tuesday. We just gather on Sunday and just try to get our fix. My friends, this is not the way it should be. And this is the reason Jesus came to the church at Pergamos and he said, you've compromised in these areas. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you what identifies you. What makes you distinctive in your identity? What is it that has impacted and affected your identity as it is? Let's ask today, your identity, is your identity based in culture or is it based in Christ? Do you look more like the world? Do you look more like Christ? Now, I know all of us are... People in progress, at least I am. But am I looking more like Jesus than I am the world, or am I looking more like the world each day? Hey, let me, let me bring it to this. Do you look more like Rustin, or do you look more like Christ? Now, don't get me wrong, of so you just got offended. You ought to have seen people. They almost walked out of that 9 a.m. Blended this morning when I asked the question. They've been here all their lives. Look, I love Rustin. I love it. I always say I wasn't born here, but I got here as quickly as I could. I love it. But my aim is not to become like Rustin. My aim is to become like Christ. Hey, many of us were from the South. You can tell by listening to my speech, most people know I'm from the South. Most people actually know I'm from Mississippi when they hear this accent. But are you more proud of being a Southerner than you are of being a Christian? Do you identify with the South? Look, I know I reflected in my speech, but when I am out in the world, I hope I also reflect the grace and the truth and the mercy of Jesus Christ in my speech. One more punch for you. One more, okay? Are you more like an American or are you more like Christ? I love the United States of America. I'm grateful for the freedom I have and the freedom that I can stand this morning. But my friends, my goal is not to become an American. My goal is to become a Christian, a Christ follower, a disciple of Jesus. So I say to you, where is your identity? You see, some of you, you never would have gone to that pagan temple. You never would have done that. No, 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 we don't do those things. But where Satan could not come in your front door, he has come in your back door. And he has allowed you to compromise your principles, your values, your doctrine, and even maybe your relationships. Your relationship with others and your relationship with him. Let me give you this, because I don't want you to hear me this morning, even when I present this. I don't want you to hear anger. I don't want you to hear this kind of like mad tone. That's not what I want you to hear from me. Actually, what I want you to hear when you read through this is there is hope. There is hope. There is hope to each church that he writes to. And what does he say? He says, you can come back in faith. That's what he says. I haven't cut you off. You can come back in faith. Look in verse 16. He says, repent. I would translate it this way. Decisively repent. It means make a decision. People don't want to make decisions. You have to make a decision when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, repent. That means a change of mind, heart, will, that you have aligned yourself now with Christ. It's not aligning yourself with the world. It's aligning yourself with Christ. He says, repent. See, this is hope. This is so hopeful that God will still, hey, here I am. All you got to do is come back turn. Turn around, turn around. Come back. Now, yes, he does say that he would fight against those with the sword of the mouth, those who have compromised. He does say that. And that is something to take in a sober manner. But what you need to hear is, you don't have to get to that point. You can repent. You can change your mind, your heart, your soul, and there is hope. And then verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And while I give him a white stone, I'll give him a white stone. And on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So listen what he says you get. He says you get hidden manna, he says you get a white stone, and he says you get a new name. That's what he says. If you repent, come back, get this compromise over with and purify the church. He says these are the things you receive, hidden manna. What is that? Well, I don't know if he's referring to the tradition that the Jews had about the hidden manna. Uh, the The Jews believed that when the Babylonians came to Jerusalem, and they destroyed Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple. They believe that Jeremiah the prophet went and got the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant which had the hit the manna in it. Remember that? This you remember like Indiana Jones? You ever seen? Okay. So it had the hidden manna. They believe that Jeremiah took that hidden, I mean that manna, and he hid it like around the base of Mount Nebo, so that the Babylonians would not get it. That was pretty well known among Jewish circles. Maybe that's what he meant. Maybe he meant like, hey, that hidden manna, the way it was, it was it's going to be restored to you. I, I'd rather go New Testament on you a little bit. Because in the New Testament, it says that the true manna is what? Jesus. That's what it says in the New Testament. The true manna is Jesus. He is the one who will provide for us. You want to talk about the revelation, the unveiling? He may be hidden now, but one of these days he'll be revealed and you will have the manna. You will have Jesus himself. You get a white stone. Some of you say, that's That's awesome, white rock. That's what I always wanted. What does that mean? Again, there's so many different things they would use a white stone for in the day. They would use it. In order to give you entrance in a certain entertainment venues, they would use a white stone when they voted on a jury. The white stone would be a vote of acquittal that you were innocent. So I don't know, maybe it it just means, hey, you get a white stone because you can come into the venue. You get a white stone because you have been acquitted through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have been declared innocent. You're going to get a new name. Revelation 19 says when Jesus appears, there's a name there that nobody knows and and maybe it's connected with that here. But what is a name in the New Testament, Old Testament name? Spoke to identity. You're going to get a new identity. You're going to get a new identity. But he says, repent. And I say to you, That Satan is trying to get a foothold in some of your lives. He's trying to bring you into relationships that are not honoring to the Lord. Some of you are in relationships right now, and you know they're not honoring to the Lord. Sexual immorality, the word that's used here, is actually a word that encompasses so much different types of immorality. Actually, the word itself, again, some of you said, I've had enough Greek. But the Greek word is the Greek word for porn. That's the word that's used, pornea. And maybe even today, some of you in this place, you're struggling with pornography. I'd bet there are a lot of people in this place, just to be honest, that have struggled with pornography. And whereas you've been clean physically because of the virtual nature of pornography, you have given your heart over to immorality. You've given yourself over. You've compromised. But it's not hurting anybody else. I'm telling you, Satan's crawling in the window because he knows if he gets you to compromise on that, he can lead you to other places. Repent. You can contend for the faith, but don't compromise for the faith. Well, it's just rough. They lived where Satan dwelt, and still Jesus did not give them an excuse for immorality. I don't care what you're going through. Jesus is not giving you a pass on immorality in your life. But he says, come. You can come back in faith. I pray this day that God would renew your heart, freshen you. Hey, cleanse you. There have been days in my life where I just needed God to give me a fresh cleansing. Not that I wasn't saved. I knew I was saved. But, man, I had just God washed me up because, man, I've let things get pretty dirty in my life. This may be that day for you. I pray you would hear his message. And before the stumbling block takes you down, I pray that you would change your direction and walk in a different way with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. I thank you for this message. God, as I struggled with it this week, as Lord, you did a work in my heart, as processing it of, trying to get before you and, Lord, allow you to examine some areas of compromise in my life. And, God, by the way, I thank you that you were gracious when you did that and showed me truth and also helped me to experience forgiveness. But, God, now I pray that this message, which I know was exactly for this morning and this moment, and, Lord, even those you know in this place that you knew would be here, God, I pray right now you'd speak to them. And there's some of them, there's some of them that already feel like they have participated in scandal. They've fallen, Lord. But God, let them know this morning that you love them. And Lord, that you are wanting them to come to you in faith and repentance. God, for some of us in this place, Satan is trying to come in our window right now. God, through your Holy Spirit, because we know we can't do it on our own, Lord, through your Holy Spirit, may we shut that window and may we uh, we give no place to the enemy in our lives. God, purify us this morning. Help us to live for you just on Monday, just like we would on a Sunday morning in this place. Lord I lift up my brothers and sisters now I pray for your work in this moment of commitment in Jesus name Amen would you stand good morning